Welcome back to EDK. Episode 20, I believe. Aftermath. First thing I want to do is thank you for listening to my previous episode. Um, it is, of all episodes that I've released for EDK, which of now there are 20 plus the ones where I sang songs, um, more people listen to it than than any of my previous episodes, so I, I appreciate that. It, it means, it actually means a lot to me. Um, I would love to hear your feedback. I've got a couple people that have reached out to me and have told me how they felt and, you know, that it seemed like it was a hard thing to do. It was. It was. It was something that was, um, something that was a long time in the making. Um... And it's, I had to fight against that old school mentality, that old traditionalist way, which was to not talk about it, which was to hide my head in shame. And, and especially with the way that, that, the, that the world works in certain ways right now, when people talk about quote unquote canceling and things like that, I, I don't think that's, a, that's an honest concern for me. I think that's more of a thing for celebrities. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's certainly things for pe people with patterns of behavior, right? Like, so I think, I think quote unquote, canceling a person is important in a situation where someone like Ron Jeremy or someone like, um, uh, who's another big one that was the dude that did, uh. Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein, where it's where it's a pattern and it's literally this behavior that continues over and over and over again of of taking advantage of people. And, and honestly, it has a lot to do with the with the content of what happened. Right. So um, and, and me particularly, I mean, I I guess in this episode, I want to kind of talk to you about what happened afterwards and how I felt about myself. So following what I call the incident, which is the, it was literally just like the upturning of my life. Basically everything was upside down. I didn't know what I believed reality was, uh, was a blur. I, I saw things break like kind of like a, a picture, like a glass picture of some sort where everything fell to the ground and it broke. And afterwards I was, I was looking to pick up the pieces. And the first thing that I can say, and hopefully I don't ruffle too many feathers with this, is that uh, the the prison system that I ended up in uh, was woefully inadequate for the type of situation that happened to me, which was that I had a psychotic break, and I I hurt myself and other people. And another person, I should say, which is my wife. And thankfully, coming away from it, remembering the content of what happened, I'm glad that nobody died, honestly. Because that was surely on the table. It was definitely something that was in the cards, and thankfully, you know, not all bad things came of that. You know, it wasn't the worst possible. The, the, the outcome of what happened was surely, was definitely a bad thing. Um, which was that I was put in jail for a few days in, in the Muskegon County Jail, in the holding area. I was there for, I think it was two or three days until I, until I made bail. 
and was able to leave. I lived with my mom for a little while. I, I lived with my grandpa who was going through dementia. I was kind of with him for a few weeks until finally we got to the point where I was starting to actually pick up the pieces of what happened. Now, the the toughest thing was, I don't know if it's the toughest thing. I, I think the toughest thing when I was in jail was that I couldn't, I had, basically my voice was gone for some reason. or another. I honestly don't understand that, but my voice was gone. Um, I could barely talk. Uh, I couldn't see out of one eye. This is something that I mentioned before. I couldn't see out of one eye. The other eye, I could see double vision, so I could barely kind of make out what was going on. I could, I could hear just fine. Um, I had bruises all over my body um, in different places, and I was generally a mess. I was, uh, I was, uh, I was definitely physically completely spent. Let's put it that way. And, uh, I remember being in jail, try just trying to make heads and tails of what was happening and trying to really wrap my mind around the fact that I was still here, that I was, that I was still, it, it felt like I probably should have died. And I think in many ways I felt like I died. Like, I, I experienced some sort of death. I know a lot of people talk about, or not a lot of people, but I've talked to some of my friends about the incident and what happened, and some of them say that it sounds like ego death, and I can't really speak much to that because I, the only thing I know about ego death is death is what I've read from them or what I've what I've kind of read from myself, and it may, it may be, but a lot of it is trying to label it, right? Like, trying to label what happened and... Honestly, it's hard for me to put labels on it because it was so, it was so crazy. Um, after I'd taken the edibles uh, that night and, uh, and tried to harm, harm, I harmed myself, but tried to kill myself um, in, in multiple ways, uh, I lost consciousness, certainly. And I felt, when I lost, lost consciousness and felt um, that happen the the experience that I had in my own mind or however it happened uh, had me believing that reality was many things and it's hard for me to explain it because I can't I can't tell it to you in a way that makes sense for what I remember um, the immediately following the incident I had no memory of what happened Um I didn't know, I didn't know where I was initially. I, I I figured it out pretty quickly, which was that I was in jail. Um, and uh, I, I started to very, very, very slowly put together some of the pieces. I was more just in pain at that point. And uh, thankfully, I came across some really nice people in jail. Um, people that, I mean, I don't know if they realized that I had gone through something really, really dark or if they were just nice people because they were in generally, they were generally nice people. And, and I, and I was able to let them know, um, in my own way that I had never been in jail before. Um, and I was, I was vulnerable as a person in there and they, they took me kind of not necessarily under their wings, but the darkness and the, the, the anxiety and the depression that came along with what happened were, were already starting to set in on me. 
um, especially about a day in where I'd started to realize the, the first thing was the, the realization that I talked to, and uh, you know, one of the people there, one of the, um, I don't know if you would call them, they're not wardens, but they're the, the staff of the county jail. And the first thing I wanted to know was, is anybody dead? Uh, because that was a, that was a real concern for me. That was the first thing I want to know was, how's my wife? Um, you know, did, and they let me know that, you know, she was fine. She had some, she had some bruising, but, um, she was, she was okay. And so that was a sigh of relief. And then the, the next question was, you know, to start to try to figure out what exactly happened, you know, where, what, what happened in my head to allow me to believe what I believed, which was that what I mentioned last episode, which was that realization that my wife was somehow against me, was somehow basically the, if reality was a prison, then she was the, the one with the key. And, uh, that realization that she was against me and that she was the evil and that I had to fight against that, that was, that was the feeling that dawned on me after I had gotten high those multiple times that I had this realization that she was the, she was the problem and I had to eliminate her. And then when she left, obviously then there was, then it was just me. So my anger and my, my pain turned inward upon myself. Um, and that was, that was lost to me following the incident. My, my memories, when I first came out of it, when I first started to like, regain consciousness and starting to recover just slightly. I didn't have any um, memories of, of what happened. I was very much blank. I wasn't a total amnesiac. I knew who I was. I could say my name and I knew where I was from and I knew I knew that something bad had happened, but that that part of it was gone. There wasn't any sort of memory. So I was trying to figure it out. Um, upon posting bail and leaving the jail, uh, one thing that I will say uh, just before I go is uh, regarding the jail and uh, before I move on from that is uh, the jail would not let me have my venoflexine, the effector that I needed to basically that I needed to take because I had not I had not gone off of effector. I'd only lowered the doses based dosage based on what my doctor had said. So like I needed I needed that that drug, that prescription drug, um, even though I was still. I think I was still taking 75 milligrams at that time. So my, my, another one of my thoughts was, should I go back to 150 milligrams? Should I stay at 75? What I also, I had a thought that maybe the effects had something to do with it, but I wasn't entirely sure because all I know is that I got high twice and recently had gone down, had uh, lowered my dosage with the effects and I knew I wasn't sleeping very well. So there were a lot of, there were a lot of things that were playing against my thought process. Um, and, and I knew something had gone down. So I was trying to figure out why, cause I really wanted to avoid it. Right? Like when you have a psychotic break, you don't want that to happen again. <laughs> Any of you who have had psychotic breaks or known someone who's had a psychotic break, it's very, you have to kind of walk around a little bit like you're on eggshells because you don't know what's going to cause that. Right. Um, and, and when you first come out of it, the thought is anything could cause it, right? Like, who knows? I mean, it could be, could be you're walking down the street and all of a sudden something crazy happens and boom, like you're, you're right back there. 
So um, I left the the prison after being you know uh, told when the the judge would have a, a hearing. We had all those things. I I got on. I was on bail. I immediately started trying to make sure that the family had money because I knew that was going to be a, a challenge. Um, the Hardio wasn't working back then, so you know, where's if if money's not coming in, then obviously we we're going to lose the house, and that's a whole other thing. And I don't want my kids to be homeless, and all these you know all of these things. So I'm trying to figure out a way to make sure that she's okay. But also, I have no contact with her. The judge says you can't talk to her. Um, and in fact, the, the no contact, it was kind of murky. We we decided that it extended to the kids, even though I wanted to see the kids. I, I also was not I was not confident in myself. Right. I didn't I didn't want to all of a sudden be right back in that situation where I had a psychotic break. And I didn't part of me didn't want to go back home for at least for a while. I was uh, I was away from home for about three weeks until I think it was mid-July, mid-August, I should say, when this would be August 2021, where I was um, presented in front of the of the court. We we had re- reached a plea deal uh, with the court, which was to plea down from, you know, what would have been a felony, a really pretty nasty felony, plea down to a misdemeanor, um, which was domestic violence. Um, and part of, part of the, uh, plea deal was that I was, I had to seek therapy. I couldn't do marijuana, no, no beer, no drugs whatsoever. I would be on probation for six months and, um, I had court, court fees and things like that. And, and honestly, a a big piece of that was the fact that I had never been in the system at all prior to this. I, I've been a law abiding system, uh, a law, a law-abiding citizen for pretty much my entire life, with with the exception of very small things that I think most people do, like speeding here and there, and uh, you know, pirating here and there when I didn't have a lot of money and I wanted to watch a movie, and you know, downloading songs from Napster. Like those are, those are the things that that would have been the issue if if it would be from a lawful perspective. And I had never, I had never been in the system before, so. Um, also, I was I was very happy to take the plea because the alternative was fighting it, the alternative or or you know just taking a, a felony charge, and probably being in jail for a little while, um, or prison as it were. So, and and a lot of that was the, a lot of the the, the plea deal was Hardia. In fact, I think she was the catalyst behind all of it. Um, relatively soon after the incident, probably a few weeks in maybe even a week, she showed up at my grandpa's place when she knew I was there. And she, I knew we were no contact. And I was so scared of that because like, not only was she there and, and like, I, I care deeply for, her. I love her. Like I want, I want to make sure that she's safe and like, I don't want her to be in pain. And she had her own questions, obviously, like, where are we going? Do you want to stay together at all? Is and, and, and for me, I was just starting to put the pieces together as to what actually happened. So I was researching a lot. I was trying to figure out what exactly could have caused that. And I stumbled, and after we talked, which was, you know, I told her, I said, I want to stay together if we can. But I really left the ball in her court. Like, she wants to be with somebody who can have a psychotic break. That's up to her, right? I'm not going to I'm not going to push her in that direction. I'm not going to force her to be in the same house as somebody who, f- who flipped out. Like, are you kidding me? 
I would have I would have been comfortable if she wanted to completely walking away from the whole thing and letting her have her own life with the kids and that would have sucked, but that was my mindset at the time, which was that I was starting to formulate this opinion of myself, which was that I was a complete piece of shit. Um, because I've I've looked and watched people many times that are in abusive relationships that are that are in relationships with, and you have people that keep going back. Like you have woman a woman that keeps going back to the man, but the man is abusive, and eventually something terrible happens. And I I've, I'm I'm no stranger to true crime, um, so I've I've at least read and heard about it happening many times. And I I never thought about myself in that respect, but now that I was on the on the other side of that fence, I would have totally, I would have totally accepted it. It would have sucked, but I would totally would have accepted it if she wanted to just completely walk away from it. And she was presenting me with the thought, which was that we should stay together because I think she knew at the end of the day, she trusts me. She trusts that I'm, that I am a good person. She trusts that I am somebody who's worth redeeming you know, who, who had a spectacularly epic fail of a misstep and put us all in jeopardy. But I think she knows or knew even then, even well before I did, that it wasn't, that it wasn't something that I wanted to go down that road again. And I wasn't going to go down that road. And, and I'm saying that she knew before I did that maybe I wasn't a danger, <laughs> even though in my, my heart at, at that point I was I was completely convinced that I was just a a step away from everything falling apart. And maybe I was. Maybe I was. Maybe her maybe her belief in me was what brought me back. Um so over the next months or so as we started to kind of get back to the point where things were relatively not normal. Don't get me wrong, not normal. You don't have a psychotic break and just go back to normal. You can't you can't because you're going to you're going to have a lingering you're going to have lingering things that are going to pop up. And over the next year, I would say, uh my memories of that night slowly came back. Everything that I thought, everything that I felt, the pain. And it it started to kind of coalesce in my mind to where and it, it didn't make a lot of sense, especially at the time that I was unconscious and I was having I assume were dreams. I can't really tell you what they were. They were the most vivid dreams I've ever had. They were completely batshit crazy. Um, it involved me going in the future, in the past, and basically jumping to different realities. And it was just, it was, it was a trip. It was a crazy trip. And uh, and I was not prepared for it when it happened. And so, um. But I slowly got my memories back. I still have them now. I can, if I'm as I'm talking about it right now, I'm right back there. I'm I'm basically triggering myself. But I've learned to deal with the thoughts behind it and to realize that these things they can't all be true. These things that were in my mind, and and part of me wants to unravel them and and think about them and logically go through and go like, okay, what was this? What exactly happened? What, what was, it, what, I mean, it just, it didn't make sense, but it also kind of made sense. It was basically like every moment my, my mind was grasping at straws to try to make sense of the crazy shit that was happening. Cause that's what a mind does. If you, if you all of a sudden, let's say you, you take your consciousness and you take your consciousness and you put it into a different person at a different time, 
there's going to be a lot of shit that doesn't make sense, right? If you if you're talking about cross dimensionally, let's say you, let's say your consciousness all of a sudden shows up in another being from a different dimension where nothing is the same. Okay, well, now all of a sudden, all of these, all of these things that make sense about the world to that being have to make sense to the consciousness because it's experiencing those things. Um, I guess there's a kind of a thought exercise we can do. You think about yourself as a baby, right? The baby doesn't really know much. They learn about the world piece by piece. By piece. They're little scientists. So the first thing a baby learns is, okay, needs needs food, cries, it gets a boob or whatever. Like, okay, now they're going to have, now the baby's going to eat. Okay, that's cool. So baby learns to cry, to eat, just cry a certain way to eat, but then the baby poops or pees or whatever, and oh, now they've got a dirty diaper. Okay, they cry a different way, learn, okay, now the mama or the daddy's going to come in, take care of the baby, clean up the baby, right? And then the baby, you know, learns that, you know, being held, it wants affection, it wants to be, you know, wants to be happy, wants to be secure, you know, in that in that feeling. And, and then slowly as the baby gets older, now, now they're learning what things are. Okay, well, this is a floor, that's a ceiling, you know, that's a, that's a wall there. And if I bump into it with my nose, it hurts. So I'm not going to do that. And if I run into this thing, I don't know what that is, it's some sort of a thing, you might think of it, the baby might not know, but it's a chair. If you run into the chair and it's flimsy, it might fall over too. So you got to be careful about that. You don't want to get hurt. But babies are scientists. They're learning piece by piece by piece. And this is what happens with the world as you get older too. We, we Now we learn English and we learn what words mean. So, okay, this is a chair. This is a computer in front of me. I've got a mic boom. I've got headset on. I've got all these things around me. I know all of these. As soon as I look at these things, I know exactly what they are. There's microphones up there. I see notebooks over there. I'm describing the room I'm in, by the way. I have sound baffling around here. There's a TV right here that needs to be repaired. But I know what all of those things, all of those things are. However, those those the very idea of those things are labels, right? I look at this TV and I instinct I not instinctively I know because of my experiences that that's a TV. Okay, well. In a different reality, TVs might not be called TVs, right? It could be called something totally different. And the the information that I know about TVs based on looking at them is that they were basically created in the 1900s, and they started as very small, uh, basically viewports. It's a small viewport, but a big kind of like cavernous tube or tubes that were connected to electric that made it so you could have a very small image, and now they've... They've evolved to be a point where they can be flat screen and high definition, and who knows what they're going to look like 100 years from now, right? So, but what if we lived in a timeline where a TV wasn't called a TV? What if we lived in a timeline where a TV was, okay, let's say aliens visited uh, Earth 2, let's call this Earth 2, so it's a different timeline, and they gave us this technology out of the kindness of their heart, and all of a sudden we had something that would be akin to a TV, something like that, where you could view things from different people and content and things and things of that nature. However, maybe they don't call it a TV. Well, if my consciousness jumps into a being from Earth 2, or maybe the Earl from Earth 2, if you will, because this, let's assume that multiverse theory might be might be correct in this situation, might not be. But let's say my consciousness all of a sudden jumps into Earl 2, from Earth 2, in a, in a place where TVs are this completely different thing. They are technolo- technolo- technology given to us by aliens. And who knows, 
maybe the word technology doesn't mean the same thing, right? In fact, it probably doesn't. So the word technology, it's something else, right? It's a completely different word. These are labels we put on everything around us. All of our existence is learn basically as a baby, learning what these labels are so that we can describe everything around us and that we can live within our society and within our little bubbles. And we can say exactly what these things are. I'm a man. That's a woman. Right? And, and where we get into trouble a lot in our, in our society, which is happening a lot right now, by the way, and it's always been an issue, by the way. But where we get into trouble is when the labels aren't quite enough for what's happening. And this is kind of my roundabout way of telling you that I can't necessarily tell you what happened the night of the incident. I can give you guesses. And, and trust me, if I gave you all of my guesses, you would probably think that I am batshit just completely insane at this point. <laughs> Which is, which I think is generally okay for me because I'm kind of wrapping, I'm slowly wrapping my mind around the fact that I am indeed crazy and I'm different. And there's things that are, there's things about me that I think a lot of people have, if you've known me at all over the years, there's just something slightly different about me. And it's not necessarily good and it's not necessarily bad, but there's something different about the way that I conduct myself and the way that I view the world. And I'm not even, I don't even want to go from a political perspective. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about just the way that I see things. Just the way that I experience things. And, and I think, generally speaking, people are all this way. We desperately want to label everybody certain things. You're a liberal, you're a conservative, this is this, you know, you're this, 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 and this, this, right? And it makes it very convenient for us to label people that way. Because then when we argue, we can argue against the very nature of what that is as opposed to the person themselves. And we can say, well, because you're conservative, you're clearly racist. And because you're liberal, you're clearly pro-trans and, you know, uh, pro-abortion and all these different things. And obviously we ascribe the worst of all of these descriptors to a person that we're arguing against because it makes it easier to argue against them, right? But that's not the way reality works, sadly. We all have these very individual experiences as we grow up and we learn about the world and we, we learn, sadly, very anecdotally that certain things are certain ways. You might grow up in a neighborhood where maybe a black person is mean to you one day and then all of a sudden all black people are mean, right? You might grow up in a neighborhood where you see someone who's trans and it scares you as a kid for some stupid reason. And then all of a sudden you're scared of trans people for the rest of your life. Or you grow up as a hyper conservative gun nut in, a, in an area, but you at the same time know that you're a little bit different because you kind of like men a little bit, a little bit more than you think you should. But then you're taught that homosexuality is evil because that's what the church says. And you're taught that homosexuality is bad because maybe some cousin of yours got exiled from their home because they came out as homosexual and their dad was really mad about it and disowned that person. So just to be sure, you never really explore or go down that particular road in your mind. And even though you may not have been necessarily homosexual well you may not have necessarily not been homosexual so 
you've completely closed the door on that for bad reasons, which is that the people around you have told you that it's wrong. And then uh, you see people being free and happy, and then you get mad because you were never given that opportunity yourself, right? Or maybe um, maybe in the 70s you were out at a dance with your uh, your girlfriend and you decided that you were going to take your privilege and have sex with her, even though she wasn't really into it at the time. Even though, even though she seemed like she was into it initially, then she kind of decided not to, but because you're the man, obviously you have the say and you're not going to let her, you know, basically embarrass you. So you went ahead and did it anyway. And even though she didn't say anything about it afterwards and you guys drifted apart over the years, as we got into the years, you know, especially recently, and you've got a little bit up there, and you're probably about 50 or 60 years old, and all of a sudden you see all these people saying that it's probably not a good idea to force yourself on anybody. In fact, what you did might be considered rape. But you're not going to address that because it happened a long time ago, right? And and, and obviously they're wrong for having those feelings, right? And I'm not talking about women in, gen- women in general. I'm talking about the, the new people, the new... Uh, the new generations, right? They're all up their own ass with rights and all those things, right? And, and and then if you think about it, really, they're just trying to take power away from white men, right? So really, fuck them, <laughs> right? So anyway, it's all it's all individual little bubbles that we're in, right? And we grow up in. Well, after the incident, I had to kind of reform everything I knew about the way the world worked. I had to. Re- I really went as far back bedrock deep as I possibly could in my mind and and really started to kind of formulate who is Earl? Who am I? Right? What, what, what is my, what is my purpose here for me? Not, not for the universe in general, not for my kids, not for my wife, not for my friends, not for the random people that interact with me. Like I'm an NPC when I answer phone calls for them. Who am I for me, though? What's my point? And I I realized that in the years when I was on Veniflaxine specifically, but really since I had kids, I had not prioritized myself at all. I had deferred everything to my... What's the word? My idealization of what I thought a man should be and my idealization of what I thought a father should be and and how I, even though I would paint myself as someone who's progressive, who believes that human beings are always trying to get better and trying to do better as a species and try to do better as people, even though I believe that, and I honestly do, that doesn't mean we can't backslide a little bit, but I honestly believe that as long as you live, you are actually always presented with opportunities to be better. And you're presented with opportunities to be worse too, but but those are two of the same. That's that's two of the same side of the same. That's the same side of the, of a coin, right? Or two different sides of the same coin. You have a, a chance to do great, and you have a chance to do bad. Those things usually come together, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes you're given a choice to be a bad person, and you take that, and by doing that, you lose opportunities to be good in the future. Or maybe you have to really work hard after you've been a really bad person to try to be a a good person, right? If you've killed thousands of people, it's probably hard to turn that life around into a very positive thing, right? 
it's hard to turn that life around to be a, a a net positive for the world as opposed to something where you've taken away, really, if you think about it, right? We're always given chances to either contribute or take. And there are times in your life that you probably should contribute, and there's times in your life that you probably should take. And then there's obviously that middle ground, which is a neutral ground, and that's not a very fun place to be in. But I've, I was in, that's basically where I found myself as I started to analyze my life after the incident. I realized that I hadn't done the things I wanted to do with my life. And, and some of you may think of this and say, oh, that was definitely a midlife crisis. Well, maybe. If you want to put that very convenient label on it, sure. But what I can tell you from my perspective is I hadn't done the things that I wanted to do. Maybe with the exception of having kids, of course. In fact, that was, that was the main thing I wanted to do when I, was in, when I was in high school. I wanted to have kids, and I wanted to prove that I could have kids and be a good dad when, when my dad wasn't that great to me. And when, when my mom and I had a lot of issues, when we were, especially when I was a teenager, I wanted to be there for my kids where my parents really weren't there for me. I wanted to be, I wanted to be better than them in, in all aspects, if possible. And I wanted to show them. Now, my dad is dead. He died uh, 12, 13 years ago, 14 years ago now. So I, I never got to show him. But I, I didn't want to rub his face in it. I just wanted to show him that I had the ability to do it. And that I'm his genetics, so why didn't he do it for me? But um, I went as far back as I possibly could when it came to my belief systems and kind of who I was. And, and, and I, was, I was really unhappy with a few things. First of all, I used to be very physically fit. I used to play games. Like, I used to play soccer all the time. I used to go out and, you know, have fun with friends by playing different games, play ping pong, do all these different things, right? I, I realized that I had really thrown that away. And, and part of it was I hurt my knee, but it, I also that was a long time ago too. That was like 2008, 2007. And I, I messed up my knee. I did something to my MCL and the ACL, never went to the doctor for it, but it made it so I couldn't really run anymore. Um, also, getting older kind of sucks, right? For those of you that are a little bit older, you get aches and pains when you try to do things you haven't done in a while. Um, also, I wasn't eating very well. I was, I was definitely eating too much fast food um, because food is very much a vice for me. It's because I, all of the men in our families have impulse control. My dad had impulse control with alcohol. That's that led him down a really deep, deep dark path. Never was able to say no. Never was able to decide to stop, um, with the exception of like one year as as he was an adult. For me, um, my impulse control comes from anything that I have and get any sort of pleasure out of. <laughs> so, so I, I usually, for for self preservation's sake, I usually push those things aside. You know, um, my love of basically women in general, like the female form, is a huge thing for me. I fall in love basically at the drop of a hat. I suppressed that for a long time because I didn't want to. I didn't want to mess up the monogamy I had with my wife, right? Now, obvi now, obviously, if you know anything about me and the relationship I have with my life, with uh, my wife and my life, I should say, and uh, we we actually changed from being monogamous to ethically non-monogamous. Now, we're still trying to figure out what exactly that looks like, but 
I'm not constrained by the idea of monogamy. I also don't think monogamy comes from a good place. I think generally in, in generally relationships, as we're taught as we get older, is that monogamy is super important, but at the same time, the way I view monogamy is that that's ownership one way or another, and I don't like that. I don't like that from a male perspective, certainly, and I definitely don't like that from a female perspective as well. We don't own each other. We don't own people. Just because you're in a relationship with somebody, even if you get married, doesn't mean you own that person. And anything that anything that even hints of ownership in the United States society society right now is not a good thing for me. Because we have a bad history of that. My hope is that marriage in general is not a thing in 100 years. My hope is that it's gone. And that people do not get married anymore. And that doesn't mean that people can't have partnerships and have, have somewhat monogamous relationships here and there. But my hope is that that's the extreme minority in 100, 200 years. That's assuming we make it there, of course. Plenty of things can derail us. Asteroids, us building nukes, destroying the climate. And putting our heads in the sand and saying, well, that's my right as a person is to be able to... Well, okay. Yeah, well, you live in a society, don't you? Yeah, but I, I want to do this. Okay. Maybe you should think about other people, but I know empathy is a hard sell to the narcissist, <laughs> but I know narcissists that are also very much keen on helping the environment. So maybe there's a better way to do things, but that's part of evolution of people, right? Some people are going to, when they're a kid, they're going to be very, use, they're going to use a lot, right? They're going to, they're going to go out and um, they're not going to care where they throw things away or why they throw things away. And they're not going to ever try to put themselves in a position where we can consider that as a species, as a hu as the human race, we have actually made huge changes to our behaviors in the past. And, and it, even though it looks imp impossible from that individual perspective, that doesn't mean it's not possible to do. All it, all it takes is a coherent message from people that actually care. Right. And this is this is a problem, especially here in the United States. Our politicians don't really feel like they're in it for us or for us as a people. They're in it for themselves, right? So if you have a politician, even if they're saying nice things and they're a part of the party that you believe, if they're in it for themselves, they're not going to do anything really that positive. So in, in my mind, I'm making all of this. This is all going on, right? So after after the incident, the aftermath of it is I'm reconsidering everything. And for a while, I tried to run from my normal behaviors, playing video games, you know, uh, it, that was the main one, I would say. And, and some of you may roll your eyes, 39-year-old playing video games. Well, I'm not going to stop now. But at the same time, I can be more measured with the amount of time that I play, right? And, and there's definitely more there. There are weeks where the stress and the the issues of life get to me enough and I play more video games because I'm trying to escape. It's escapism. I know what it is. But I also genuinely love the idea of being able to put myself in the shoes of other characters and be able to experience their story and understand the lessons of their video games are books. You understand that, right? They're they're more interactive books. 
and, and there was definitely a time where you know, people looked at books and said, oh, that's super, that's super damaging. You think about like the printing press and when, um, when the Bible became mass produced and a lot, and the church went crazy because they were super mad and they thought that they were going to lose all of their followers because the church for the longest time had to interpret and translate the Bible. And that was the way that the general people and the general populace got the quote unquote word of God, right? And the church was happy being like the, 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 the key master of, and the, the key master of all information, right? This was your key to salvation, so the church was able to interpret it, and that's why the church was uh, super corrupt, of course, because that information should be free to everybody. And the printing press made it free to everybody, or closer to free, right? Translations of things, translations of, of the Bible. And, and I personally don't like organized religion, but that was a huge thing not that long ago, hundreds of years ago. Right. And and with the advent of technology and with the advent of, of being able to, you know, speak with people across the globe, you obviously the hope was that we would grow intellectually and enlightened, you know, and be able to communicate important ideas across the globe, Get, bring us closer together. Well, unfortunately, that these the Internet has also birthed corporations that have their own stake and don't care about us. They only care about us in so far that we use their product and click on the websites that they put out there, and and there are definitely there are definitely interests out there that like us fighting amongst each other as opposed to working together. Why do you think it's always a fight when someone wants to unionize? Why do you think it's a fight whenever somebody wants to gain rights? Because the perception is that by one person gaining rights, that other people are losing them, right? Even though that's not the way it works. And even if it was the way it worked, why does one person have rights and the other person not? And we don't live in a slave state anymore. At least that's not that's not what they want you to believe. That's not what corporations want you to believe. Even though they created the dollar, and the dollar is something that we work towards, and we have to obviously always try to keep working towards that dollar, and that means always going to a job eight hours a day at least, sometimes 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And, and we need to sacrifice for the good of the country, right? Even though every one of us have this amazing, crazy-ass brain and consciousness that we can't even explain. But yeah, we should definitely sacrifice all of our time for that, right? Because that's super important. Anyway, I'm ranting a little bit. Um, I'm probably going to end that episode here, actually. Um, the important thing about the aftermath is that it caused me to really question everything. It question, I question everything from the ground up, and I'm still doing it. I'm still trying to figure out who I am and why I am. I'm trying to figure out what my point is. Like, what am I supposed to do? Um, and, and, and it's not even, I, I, I guess it's not even, it's not even from a, like, what I, what I was, what, I, what was I put here to do, Right. Because that's that's assuming that I was put here to do anything. Um, I can feel that way all I want. And I think that's very common for near-death experiences, for people to come out the other side and say, I need to figure out what my purpose is. Well, I need a purpose for me. And that's what I'm working on. So, anyway, I want to reiterate 
I appreciate you all for listening to the podcast last time. Um, the incident episode was really cathartic to me to be able to release that and, and put it out there from a public perspective, I think is very important. And if anybody ever has questions and this is, this is, if I'm ever in positions of any sort of authority in the future, um, if I've, if I'm ever in a position where someone says, why is that guy here? Because this is what happened to him. I'm going to point back here at this particular episode and the incident episode and say, I have nothing to hide as a person. I'm all, I'm trying to grow as a person, actually. And I will admit that mistakes that I made led me down that path. However, I've also learned a great deal about the world and myself since that. And even though I don't necessarily believe in fate, I also believe that Without that, I wouldn't be the person I am today because of the way consequences work. And I can choose to try to make that a positive thing in my life, even though it was the darkest moment. I can choose to walk from that as opposed to away from it, if that makes sense. I can be aware of where my past was and what things have happened. And still try to be a good person. Like I said, if you have any questions, please email me e.kabbalah at gmail.com or send me a message on Messenger, wherever is fine. I'd be more than happy to talk about it. If anybody wants to be a, um, a guest on EDK, I'm always looking for guests. My scheduling has been a little bit up in the air lately because I've been also trying to do other things. I've been trying to write the novel, which I've talked about. I've been trying to learn how to play guitar. I still do karaoke basically once a week, even though my energy has been a little bit weird lately. I think I have been coming off something, or maybe I have allergies or something. It makes it harder to sing when you have allergies. But anyway, appreciate you. Love you. I'll talk to you soon.